Greetings, Assalamu alaikum, welcome to another episode of the Hikmah Project podcast. Uh, my name is Saqib Safta, I'm your host, and today I'll be joining Dr. Eric Winkle to discuss the mysteries of fasting in Ibn Arabi's Fatuhat al Makiyah. You can access the translation to this chapter through our Patreon link, uh, which you can find on our website www.thehikmahproject.com So in this uh, podcast we discuss the metaphysics of fasting. Uh, we look at also Ibn Arabi's legal perspective on fasting and moon sighting. So without further ado, here's the podcast. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome Dr. Winkle. Absolute pleasure to have you on the show again. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So, Sidi, what's Ibn Arabi's perspective on fasting? Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Yeah, let's look at uh, what Ibn Arabi has uh, to say in his Mysteries of Fasting. And I'll be uh, reading some of the text, uh, some selections from this first part of that chapter. And you'll be listening for, he's telling us that there, fast, there's nothing like the fast. And of course, we know that with God, with Allah, there's nothing like Him. And so Ibn Arabi is going to connect those two. So after the beautiful poem of this chapter, he begins the prose passage with, Learn, God assist you, that psalm is abstaining and raising. So this is very interesting because we know that it's abstain abstaining, we understand that you, you, you abstain from eating food, for instance. Um, but also this raising, what does that mean? And he says that the word itself, psalm in Arabic, means to raise, to elevate. And he quotes a pre-Islamic poet uh, who says, when the day rises, sama, and sama is based on psalm. So there's something about the fast which is raised and elevated. So Ibn Arabi will tell us, in the true dimension, fasting is a foregoing, not a doing. So it's a negation and not a, it's not a positive thing. It's not something you do. It's something you don't do. And negation is something about transcendence. You, ne you strip something away. You say that there's nothing like it. You're negating that there's anything like it. So Ibn Arabi says this is, makes a correlation between fasting and God because both are transcendent, stripped away. They, they are nothing like them. So we know that in the Quran, there is nothing that is his likeness. So he negated that there should be to him a likeness. And he exalted beyond is the one who has no likeness. And we know this from intellect and from revelation. And then Ibn Arabi looks at the passage of a hadith from in Nasai. I came to messenger of God, وسلم, and I said, give me a command that I can take from you. He said, do from you is psalm, because there is nothing that is his likeness, the likeness of psalm. Thus he negated that any of the rituals be made a likeness to psalm. None of the rituals made law for his creatures. So whoever recognizes that it is a negative description, as it is a foregoing of things that would break the fast, knows with certainty that there is no likeness to psalm, since he has no ein 
described with any intelligible positive existence, the psalm. This is why God said, the psalm is mine. So in the true dimension, it is neither a worship nor an action. Now, in daily life, it is acceptable for the word action to be applied for fasting. You can say, I am fasting. And it's acceptable to do, to do that, even though it's a negative and it's a not doing. And so then we go to another hadith. This is more of the evidence that Ibn Arabi uses to understand what fasting is in the true dimension. So in the authentic collection of Muslim, we read from Abu Huraira, Messenger of God وسلم, said, God said, every action of the children of Adam is theirs, except fasting, because fasting is mine, and I recompense it. And the fast is a shield. When it is a day of fasting for one of you, do not be rude on that day and do not shout. If someone insults you or attacks you, you should say, my situation is fasting. My situation is fasting. And I swear by the one in whose hand is the soul of Muhammad that the smell of the mouth of the one fasting is sweeter to God on the day of arising than the wafting of musk. The one fasting has two joys enjoyed. When one breaks the fast, one enjoys one's fitr, the breaking of the fast. And when one meets one's Lord, one delights in one's fast. So Ibn Arabi is going to look at these very precisely. Learn that as he negates likeness from Psalm, as was established in what was preceded in this hadith, the one fasting meets one Lord with a description of nothing is his likeness. So he said, you rejoice when you meet your Lord in your fast. So you're not rejoicing in your Lord in meeting your Lord, is in rejoicing in meeting your Lord, one delights in one's fast. So that means that what is delighting the fast is that which nothing is its like. So nothing is its like describes the Lord and nothing is its like describes fasting. So when you meet your Lord, you delight in your fast. And that means that you what nothing is like is met by one nothing is like. So then the person who the true is one sight, and then you see only by his seeing. So when you see by the sight of true, then you see the true by true. The delight of the one fasting is attached to a step level of negating like things. Your delight in the fitra, that is breaking the fast, in this world is for conveying the right of the animal soul, your animal soul, which seeks nourishment. When the people who see God everywhere, the Arifun, when they see their animal soul dependent on them and their plant soul, the growth soul, then they see that they must convey nourishment to her soul, to her, to the soul. And by doing so, they convey nourishment the way the hand of God uh, gives nourishment to the soul. So they take the place and they stand in for what the true is doing when they break their fast. And so their breaking of the fast is when they are doing what the true does, that is 
responding to the need and dependency of a creature to God and the soul to the person who's overseeing the soul. Both of them give nourishment, hand over nourishment, and that's the, the div divinity of the fast. And then the second divinity of the fast is that when you meet your Lord, you delight in your fast. So you see the one nothing is like through the eyes of what nothing is like. You see God through the fast. So God is nothing like him. The fast is nothing like it. So you see God by God. And we know that only God sees God. Before continuing, can I just ask a few questions? Yes, please. Mainly for our audience and just to sum up uh, some of the, these very deep ideas. So firstly, the idea of the negative here, obviously it's a word that's used, the negative. So it's non-doing, non-action. And I believe in the Taoist tradition, they call it Wu Wei. And maybe in some theocentric sort of traditions, it's called the Vakare Deo, that cultivating the emptiness, the fact for mm -hmm. uh, divine reality. So it's it's that emptying out. What mm -hmm. uh, occurred to me was, I think it's in one on one of your books, you've got the image of the asymptote that goes up. And I think that that mm -hmm. symbolism is, is very powerful to summarize, in, in a sense, these ideas, because you've got the horizontal which is on the plane of action, but then you've got the vertical, which is going in the, uh, in the plane of being, I guess. Mm -hmm. Could you say something about that? Right. Yes. So, um, so the, the seeker, you know, we, what we, what we seek is the, the vision of the divine. And so, and we seek the proximity to the divine. We just seek to be close to the divine. We seek to see the divine. And so, in most traditions, or, or what we <clears throat> often think is that, well, I need to become a better person, I need to become more saintly, I need to be more this more that. And so that you could call that the positive way of trying to increase your, your spirituality, so that you can be close to God or see God. And Ibn Arabi tells us it's actually quite the other way around, that the way we uh, get close to God, is by becoming everything that God is not, and that is dependent. The way we approach God is not by becoming more, you know, more saintly, more pious. It's by becoming more needing, more dependent, more low. And so Ibn Arabi is telling us that what makes us approach God is our lowness and our need for God, our dependency. And of course, fasting is a great uh, ritual which tells us about dependency. We realize that our body needs things, that we need things, and that this need is what brings us close to God. And then this need then is where is, is comes from the idea of the prayer, on the, and when we pray as a medet, uh, we ask for help, help me. And help me is the same word as imdad, which is the extension, uh, which extends between us and the divine. And so our need and our prayer, please help me, creates a link between the dependent creature, me, and the divine, who is the only one who can help me and the only one who can give to me. So this is how the fast 
teaches us that we are nothing, that it's not ours. We don't have the fast. We don't do the fast. We don't do things, and that's what's the fast. And that Allah says, the fast is mine. So when the fast is mine, that means it's not for us. And so God sees God, and only God sees God. So if we want to be close, we have to be what Allah doesn't have, and that is low and dependent. And that brings us close to the divine. And then when we are brought close to the divine, we have that asymptote. When we get closer and closer and closer, uh, we, we never cross the line because we never become God. Rather, what we become is not ourselves. And so when we become not ourself, closer and closer to not ourself, then what is on the other side is the divine. And so God sees God. So Ibn Arabi has many poems to help us embrace this. So Sidi, on that asymptote image, could you just say for our listeners, what represents the horizontal axis and, and what represents the vertical axis? Okay. So in a... In asymptote, you have you have a limit, so you approach the limit, and you get closer and closer to the axis. Um, and so, as you get closer and closer and closer, you get you get infinitesimally close to the axis, but you never actually touch it, and you don't ever cross it. So this imagery is the imagery of the membrane of the barzakh, where two oceans crash against each other, but never touch and never cross the bound. So this is our picture for how we are. So we don't approach God as who we are and becoming more and more who we are. We approach God by becoming less and less capable, less and less controlling, less and less able, more and more dependent, more and more humble and low. And that's the approach to God. And this is why Ibn Arabi honors the earth, Mother Earth, uh, throughout, is because Mother Earth, as a mineral, is the perfect Muslim, the perfect Muslim who accepts and receives completely from the divine, without standing up boldly like a mountain and saying, here I am. And so arrogance is what keeps us away, and humility and lowness keeps us close. And Abu Madian taught Ibn Arabi that no one enters the garden with the tiniest uh, piece of arrogance. The, you mentioned no one sees God but God. So it sounds very much like a non-dual state. The, fast, the, the, the person fasting is entering. Yes, so the, <clears throat> so the fast... The person fasting, and we are allowed to say that conventionally because the revelation comes with, with those words, the person fasting is actually entering a non-doing. And so the person is not setting up a pole of here I am or a duality of here I am. And so without being a here I am, without being more me and, be, and actually foregoing negating, uh, becoming less me, that is how I get closer and closer 
to the axis of this non-duality, so of this oneness. You, you said something around, you know, here I am, or standing like a mountain and being arrogant. How do you make the distinction, rather, between somebody who's arrogant, but somebody who has the qualities of uh, a spiritual warrior, like Ertugul. Um, I've been talk talking to Dr. Reza about uh, Ibn Arabi and Ertugul. So Ertugul, for example, embodies chivalry, fatua, you know, very courageous qualities within the lineage of, I guess, coming from uh, Imam Ali, radiallahu uh, anhu. But surely that's not arrogance, but that's cultivating a certain stand uh, in the face of injustice. Mm -hmm. Yes. So when when the the ego and the self's desires and all of that are emptied, what uh, can take what can enter in are divine names and so divine forces, divine names. And Ibn Arabi says that there there are two uh, modes of this utter ubudiya, other slavehood, being a completely a creature. Um, there are two modes. One mode is sajda the prostration and prostration is our nature and so Ibn Arabi says look when you get sick what happens you fall down and you lie down and so being on the floor is our nature and is utterly dependent you know sick needing uh, not able to stand that is our nature and so when we fall to the floor um, we are returning to our nature but there's a second mode and he says this mode is actually even more why we are created. So it's even more our true nature. And that is when we stand up in the Salat. After the prostration, we stand up in the prayer. And when we stand up in the prayer, we are an absolute creature still. We are an absolute slave because we have been told to stand up. And so our nature, if, if we are not told anything, we just fall down on the ground. But if we are told by the divine to stand up, then we stand up as a complete, utter slave or utter creature. And so this is, Ibn Arabi says, this is a beautiful mode because now you are taking your nature, which is to be flat on the ground, and you are standing up because a divine name is saying stand. And then you stand up. And so now the divine name works in you. And that divine name does not work in you the same way as if, if you have your own ego. If you're standing up because I feel like standing up or because I'm a great guy, all of those things will uh, prevent the, the sound reception of divine names. And of course, the Sufi path is the haluk is to be able to take on as clothing these divine names. So we want to train ourselves, work with ourselves in order to be able to receive in a most beautiful way these divine names. And then we are khalifa. So khalifa comes from the word khalf, which is behind. So the khalifa is the one from behind whom the one acts. And so if you are standing because you're commanded to stand and you're doing this in, without any of your own volition or self-will, you're standing because you're told to stand by the divine, then your standing is a divine name from behind whom the one is acting. 
So, Sidi, what what else does Ibn Arabi say uh, around fasting? Uh, he also has uh, he, he he looks at this the the story, which is a very humorous story, and it's one where the Prophet laughs until you could see his eye teeth, and so it was it the levity is there, the humor is there, and this is the the uncultured man or the the Bedou the. The, the desert Arab or the someone who is not a civilized or city kind of person. And he comes in and he has a problem and he, and he tells the Prophet what his problem is. Wonderful. So what's Ibn Arabi's take on this hadith? So the, the man enters the mosque and, and, and sits before the, the Prophet وسلم, and he says, uh, and he asks the Prophet, he says, tell me what I should do. It's the month of Ramadan and um, I broke the fast by having sex with my wife, uh, what should I do? And so the Prophet starts giving him some, some things that he should do. And the first one he goes, you should fast for two months because you, you intentionally broke your fast. And he says, two months fasting? It was the fast that got me in this trouble in the first place. And then he says, well, then you should free a slave and you know, pay the money to free a slave. And he says, but in my possession, there's only this slave, me. I have no slaves. I have no money. And then he says, uh, wait here. And so as they're waiting and, and, and working out this issue, a group, a caravan arrives uh, from afar and brings a, a bushel of dates and brings them to the Prophet Sallallahu and gives them to him. And so the Prophet then says, here you go, take these dates and feed the poor. And the man says, the poor, between these two mountains, there is no one more poor than me and my family. So the prophet says, here, take these dates, go home and eat them with your family. And he laughs and laughs until the eye teeth can be seen. And this is, is it's a, the hilarity comes from here's a man saying, what should I do? And first he goes from two months fasting. That's what you should do to fix all of this. And then he gets, well, okay, I, that can't be done. How about then free a slave? There is, I can't free a slave. I'm, the only slave there is is me. And he says, okay, give these dates to someone who's poor. And he says, there's no one poorer than me. So he goes from two months of fasting down to here are the dates, take them home and eat them. <laughs> and so... Uh, Ibn Arabi says there's a lot to be learned from this this uh, story. So what he what he talks about uh, that this issue then becomes expiation. So of course the the scholars, the legal scholars, have to come up with all of these things. What do you do if this happens? If that happens? And so in Ibn Arabi's Futuhat, uh, there are probably two thousand four hundred pages of what to do if surrounding only the, the these religious rituals like fasting and prayer. He hasn't even gotten into the other issues like marriage and contracts and trading and selling and all these kinds of other things. So it's a huge, huge field. And what Ibn Arabi does is uh, he tells us how it works and it works in a most beautiful way. The area here is, is expiation, which is kafara. And kafara is the same word as kufar and kufr. And, you know, so disbeliever, ingrate, uh, ungrateful person and all of that. Because kufar are the people who cover up 
that they should be thanking God. So they're ungrateful, covering up the truth that God gives them, and therefore they should say, thank you, God. So expiation is something to do with covering up. And what is covering up is that when you make an error like this man did, he needs to cover it up. He has to cover over it. And, there, and so the first thing is says, cover over it using the fast. And he says, how can I do the fast? It was the fast that got me in trouble. And so um, Ibn Arabi writes it this way. As for this one who joined in sex while fasting Ramadan, messenger of God, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, told him to fast as an expiation. That is, be described by an adjective of the true because the fast belongs to the true. Remember, the fast is his. His response was, it was the fasting that got to me. Messenger of God, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, laughed, and his laughter was a sign of the levity of the matter. He recognized that the true had made him articulate what he meant by means of that speaker, even if that uncultured Arab was ignorant of it. It was as if he had said in his speaking, cover yourself up by the fast. That is, be true, be haq. Then this uncultured Arab was made to say, it was the true that got to me. So how can I cover up by being the true when the prob that was the problem that got me into this situation in the first place? And then we, we so he said, so I can't keep fasting. I can't become staying in this truth. It's not my truth. My truth is I am a slave. I'm a creature. I'm dependent. And then there becomes the take these dates and give them to a poor person. So this uncultured man says, shall I give these dates to someone more needing than me? There is not between the two tracks of Medina anyone needier than me. So he attached perfect, complete neediness to himself because he was returning to his creaturehood after being a master. So he, because there's, there's no one poorer, more dependent than me, he's returning to it in an absolute state. So his humility and his neediness are magnified. Now, if he had been accustomed to poverty, there would have been no pain associated with that neediness, matching the pain felt by the one who was rich and then became poor. So Ibn Arabi is saying that well, this man was being a master for a while there. He was fasting for a while, being very lordly. And then he plunged down into recognition that I am not God, I am not Lord, I am the slave, I am the creature. And so plunging down from that height made him realize that I am the lowest of the low, I am the most needy of all the needy. And that's why the dates are going home with him. And so, so Ibn Arabi is saying, now consider the wisdom of God in making all of these truths flow through his creatures in ways they do not recognize. He's saying that, look how God is speaking wisdom through this uncultured person, and this uncultured man has no idea that he's saying these great truths. So God is the one who speaks, not them. So these words are actually coming from God. They're not coming from this person who has no idea what he's saying. This is the property of expiation for the one whose behavior this is. And praise belongs to God. Alhamdulillah. And then what he does, Ibn Arabi will take this 
And he'll go into another issue that's come up among the scholars, the legal scholars. And the legal scholars are asking, well, what is the expiation for the woman when she yields to her mate for what he wants from her? That is sex. Among them, one argues she performs expiation. And among them, one argues there is no expiation due from her. And I so argue. And Ibn Arabi says, I so argue that there is no expiation for her because the Prophet وسلم, in the hadith of this uncultured Arab did not mention the woman and did not focus on her, nor did he ask about her. Therefore, it is inappropriate for us that we should make a law which God did not give us license to make. This is so important. What happened uh, to communities before, religious communities before, in the Semitic tradition, in the Abrahamic tradition, is that they got carried away with making laws. They made all sorts of laws. And the problem that, well, and the, and the, in a disease in this community, this mother community of Muslims, is that people think that we should use analogy, qiyas, and opinion, rai, all of these ways to make new laws. And Ibn Arabi says, you do not make new laws. If the Prophet did not give a, a judgment about what the woman should do, then there is no judgment about what the woman should do. It's not entering the law books. It's not in the law. And so, uh, and, and this, this is so very important. It is inappropriate for us to make law which God did not give us license to make. And so when the, and if you think about this situation, well, let's say that the woman later on comes to the mosque and wants to ask the prophet the same question that the husband asked, you know, what should I do? The prophet would say, leave off of me what I leave off of you. And so this is the prophet's answer to so many requests. People said, should I do this? Should I do that? What should I do? What should I do? Give me a law. And the prophet would say, leave off of me what I have left off of you. So don't, don't take on anything. If I've left it away from you, then you keep it away from you. Um, and this is the prophetic re reason why he did not answer many questions. He disliked questions about law because people would say, uh, oh, we need to sacrifice a cow. Well, how old should the cow be? What color should the cow's fur be, or, you know, hair be? What uh, size should the cow be? Uh, all of these questions. And he says, don't ask these questions. In other words, the law has come down and it is complete. Don't try to find any details that haven't been covered and create new laws there. And his example about analogy, qiyas, which is a major pillar for uh, so many schools of law, and he you know, utterly he cannot he cannot stand to see this happening. It's creating law. And so he says, you have here uh, people talking about, well, what can I do with my parents? Uh, if I strike my parents, uh, can I strike my parent uh, in the chest or, or in the cheek or on their shoulder? And Ibn Arabi says, quit making laws you have do not say oof to your parents don't even say tisk 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 to your parents so if you have that you don't need to find out what else you can't do it's already clear so ibn arabi is trying to say is speaking for the prophet leave off of me what i have left off of you 
And so these 2,500 pages of legal discussions are saying we have a law that is absolutely complete. We do not need any mechanism to create new laws. That's amazing. So what is the Akbarian perspective then on the four schools of Sunni legal thought and uh, maybe by extension the Jafri legal system? Does Ibn Arabi discard them? Does he assimilate them? Would he um, be bound by one of them, for example? Okay. Yeah, well, this well, we have to, to step back and see what Ibn Arabi's mission is. What his what his why he was why he was born why he was given this mission. His mission is to well, let's start from the beginning. Uh, in the beginning, so we have the Nur Muhammad, the light of Muhammad, and that. Nur Muhammad is a prophet, a guide, before Adam and Eve are a lump of clay. And so uh, then this light of Muhammad uh, enters into the historical, physical world that we are familiar with in the body of Muhammad Wasallam. And it's Khatija when he's, when he's in her lap saying, you are this light and you're not insane. And so Khadija recognizes that he is the embodiment, uh, the physical reality of the light of Muhammad. And so the light of Muhammad is what is, is that which guides every, all of humanity from the very beginning, from Adam and Eve as a lump of clay to the last person born. Their guide, all of our guides, humanity's guide, is this light of Muhammad. And this light of Muhammad comes into physical form in the body of Muhammad Wasallam, And so he is, there's six things given to him that no one else was given. And one of them is he is universal. And second, and another one is he takes all of the characteristics and shows that they are all virtuous characteristics. And so you take things like greed or envy, which we think are negative and bad, and he says, be envious of the person who has uh, a ability to recite the Quran. Be greedy for knowledge. So he takes all of these characteristics and shows how they're all good. They all can be turned to good. Now, Ibn Arabi is the dragoman, is the conveyor of the message of this universal um, light of Muhammad that came in the body practice and sunnah and Quran, which is Muhammad because Aisha said his character is the Quran. So Ibn Arabi's job is to take his the, the life of Muhammad, the Quran, to take the Arab language with the Arab language which stops at the death of the Prophet and take all of that and show that it is the universal complete guidance for humanity. So therefore, he has to go through every one of these legal scholar ideas, issues, and show how they all can be turned to the truth, how they all can be turned to true. And so he has, so his, his job is to say, we look at each issue and say, this school says this, that school says the other thing, another school says the other thing. And he has to show that outwardly they're different and that inwardly, if they are 
true, they will be true to the inward source. And so he will go to the inward source and show, if you see it this way, you will see this truth. And you will see, if you go inward, you will see that this outward truth is true. So he has to validate the outward law based on its inward validity. And those things which have no inward validity, for instance, ideas that people had uh, by analogy or laws that were made which are, are, are wrong, he's saying, you know, everyone quit following that because your Imam, let's say he's Abu Hanifa or he's Ibn Hanbal or he's uh, Jafar, whoever your Imam is, your Imam said, if there comes evidence which contradicts me, if there comes a Hadith <clears throat> which contradicts what I have said, then toss what I have said onto the garbage heap and take what the Hadith says. So Ibn Arabi is saying that means go to the source and the source is Muhammad Sallallahu and that source is the universal truth and guidance of the light of Muhammad Sallallahu Beautiful. And so Sidi, the other question is, um, uh, you mentioned Ibn Arabi's perspective is, is not to make new laws, unnecessary laws. So if Ibn Arabi, hypothetically speaking, was physically um, present in in the world today and with the modern era some you know issues that have arisen related to fasting actually for example have been um uh, the reducing of uh, fasting hours to about 16 especially in western sort of northern countries where the day can be 18 and people's lifestyles you know uh, uh, have a nine-to-five job, or have to go to school, have got exams and so forth. Don't allow for an afternoon nap, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. What would Ibn Arabi do with the legal framework to apply it to our condition today? Yeah, yeah. Ibn Arabi has, has looked at all of those things in 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 a perfect fashion. Uh, let's look at three words. Ism means name, hal means state or condition, and hukum means property. So Ibn Arabi says that the hal and the ism are connected to a hukum, a property. So, and that connection between the property, the ruling, and the state is, is one. It's there, and we know them. What happens is that we have different hal, we have different conditions. And so in fasting, for instance, you have this, the hal, in order you say, kya hal hai? you say, what's your hal? And you might say, I'm sick. So if you are sick, that's your hal, then your hukum is you don't fast. So that's very clear that if you're sick, your hukum is you don't fast. And so the only question then becomes not what is the connection between the hal and the hukum? The only question is, what is my hal? And here, what is my hal is answered that only you can know that. That's something Ibn Arabi is telling us. You go to the inside, and the inside is you. You personally have to go to your inside and take a fatwa from your heart and find out what is your hal. So if your hal is X, then the hukum is Y. And so, uh, for instance, the the Prophet ﷺ was coming in a caravan back to Medina, and Aisha, alayhi salam, she was coming in another caravan, and this was during the month of Ramadan, 
And when they reached home and greeted each other, the Prophet said, we were travelers. And so we, uh, we did not continue the fast. And that's because a traveler is the hal, and the ruling is the traveler does not fast. And then, so, and then, so then you, but that hal is the hal that he had, because he said, Aisha, what did you do? And Aisha said, I am the Um al-Mu'minin, I am the mother of the faithful. So whenever I stopped, I went to a house of one of my children. And since I was in my house with my children, I continued the fast. And the Prophet said, Aisha, you did well. So what we have with this is that you've got to find your hal. When you know your hal, it's relatively easy to find out what the hukum is, what the law is. And so if you're in a situation um, where you are, if you are sick and you, are, and you are, want to do the salat, there are various ahkam, various rulings that you can follow. If you are very sick, you would pray lying down and you wouldn't leave your, your bed. If you are somewhat sick or sick to this extent, you might sit down and do all the motions you could while seated. If you are, in a sense, better than that, or more capable than that, then you would do what you're capable of, and that is you would stand up, sit down, and instead of sajda, you would stay sitting down, but you would bend your body forward. So there you have the salat, the different positions, all of them dictated by your state. So it's the same way with the fast. The the what the fast looks like will be dictated by how you are. And so and so if you are in a certain situation where the, the day is, let's say the night is one hour and the day is 23 hours, then would you think that a one hour is the fast? Or would you say that I am going to connect my self to Mecca? and follow Mecca. When you follow the moon, if you see the moon yourself, who says whether they see the moon? All of that depends on your hal. If you see the moon, then you cannot say that this is a day of doubt. If you don't see the moon, you're in a different situation. So the name and the condition is everything. And you mentioned about, you know, working nine to five and things like that. Well, one of the Akbarian ways of doing this is to focus on the name. And so, Let's say I have a situation where I cannot leave my work for Juma or for some other thing, um, and I get fired. Now, in that situation, I am not an independent man who can go, come and go as he pleases. You actually should call me, therefore, a slave because I am not. I, it's not under my control about where I am at one time. And of course, the slave is not required to go to Jummah. The other one is, if I am a man at home taking care of an infant, and as you know, infants cannot be left on their own, and I'm the only one there, the only one to take care of this infant, and the call for the Jummah prayer comes, then what is my situation? My situation is I am a mother. And a mother is not required to go to Juma. So I am not required to go to Juma because I am a mother taking care of this child. So you see this in, in, 
you find out what the name is. And Ibn Arabi goes as far as saying that you can be, you're, you're you, who you are biologically, but you are gendered and your gender changes. There are times when you are gendered as a woman, you're gendered as a man, even though biologically you're whatever you are. And so he's telling us that you are a cosmos and you have inside you all of these names. So which of these names is acting, that will dictate what you do in the ruling. That's amazing. Sidi, what about situations where it's a issue about performance, say students studying for an exam or going to an interview, where you're not technically bound by anyone, but uh, the fast might might impact your performance in that situation. Yeah, so this is the beauty of, of fasting, uh, because it's so interior. It's everything has got to do with the interior. No one knows whether you're fasting or not, only you know. And in fact, they say that culturally, when Muslims uh, have communities uh, outside of um, Muslim majority places, uh, they often, these communities might lose a lot of sort of uh, Islamic looking or Muslim cultural things. The last thing they lose, though, the, the one they hold on to is fasting, because fasting is such a very personal interior situation. And so what the fasting, what fasting does is when you, you have to ask, am I sick or am I well? If I'm well, I fast. If I'm sick, I don't. And only you know whether you're sick or not. And only you can say, and then traveling. So if you're traveling, you're not obligated to fast. And uh, so what is traveling? Well, uh, someone say, well, it's 40 miles. Well, we live here in northern New Mexico. I've got a highway to go to Santa Fe. I can go to Santa Fe 60 miles away and be there in 50 minutes uh, and come back again. And it's as if I haven't, you know, it's as it's, it's much effort as, as a sneeze. And so the question then becomes, is that traveling? Or I might be in a, in, in a, in a tropical area in Malaysia, Indonesia, and I'm hiking through a jungle. And there are jungles where you can go, you can go a half mile and it takes you all day to go a half mile. So is that traveling? So in other words, only you can tell what is traveling, what is sickness, and only you can know whether you should fast or not. And that's the absolute beauty of it. It forces you to go straight to your soul and speak to your soul and say, should I fast? Should you fast or should you not fast? And that is only you can know and only you can and say what what your decision is. And that's also then ijtihad. Ijtihad is your personal decision. And your personal decision may be wrong, but you're still rewarded for having a personal decision. And if it's right, you're rewarded twice. And Ibn Arabi says everyone is doing ijtihad all the time. They're having to determine based on the evidence what they should do. So given uh, the evidence, whether it's uh, um, vaccination, uh, eco, uh, energy, climate, green, whatever, it's going to be you looking at the evidence and you deciding what is the determinative evidence? What is the evidence that is decisive for you? And the same way, so if you're going to an exam, you've got to ask yourself, uh, do I fast or do I not fast? And only you will be able to uh, come up with the answer. And then 
you'll be face to face with because no one outside of you is judging what you should do. You know that you're able to fool yourself and you're, you know that you're able to be fooled. Um, and so you have to face it directly. Um, and so this is the opposite of being a hypocrite. See, a hypocrite says, you know, I close my shop uh, because it's Juma time, not because I want to pray or not because I think God told me to do it, but because I'll get hit on the head if I don't close my shop. That is the, uh, that kind of system or culture creates hypocrisy. And so fasting is the place where there can be no hypocrisy on the outside. It's only on the inside. You can look at yourself and say, uh, and am I fooling myself? And how can I protect myself from being fooled? And you can't protect yourself from being fooled by seeking outside opinions. You have to, you have to face it yourself. <laughs> wow, Mashallah. And Sidi, another legal question around fasting the uh, beginning of ramadan and uh, obviously the eid uh, especially in countries in the west for example where uh, the sighting uh, is not always possible and so therefore you might have a city in which different mosques are doing it on different days i've even heard of a household where people in the household are doing it on different days and I know Ibn Arabi actually in the chapter on fasting in the Fatuhat uh, has discussed his moon sighting. So what, what would he say about um, issues around that? Yeah, yeah. so the, the moon sighting, so what's very interesting, so when you see the moon, then your situation is clear. And that's, so, it's, and that's why it's so beautiful to see the moon, because you, you just know, I just saw the moon, the month has started whether it's you know Ramadan month or Shawwal month. I know it started, and that's a beautiful thing. And then when it's clouded over, uh, that's probably typical of most people's lives, is that the, the clarifying uh, light is clouded over, and so you don't really see clearly. And so you have to say, what should I do? And Ibn Arabi says, for the ones who recognize Allah everywhere, the Arafun, these ones, they are understand how the moon rises in their heart. So they've seen the moon rise in their heart, and the moon rising in the heart is the truth of Muhammad arising in the full moon of truth. We talk about things like that. So when your heart is accustomed and has learned how to read the rising and setting of the moon and the, and the travel through the mansions of the moon, then you are able to say, I can't see the moon at this moment, but I know it's there. And so this is how Ibn Arabi is saying that, therefore, citing by calculation the idea that I know that the moon was here yesterday and therefore will be here to, there tomorrow, just the way in my heart I can see where the moon is in my heart as it goes through. And so that's how Ibn Arabi says that this is what you do when the moon is clouded over for you. You have to refer to the process of the moon through the mansions of the heart. And this process of the moon then is for us today is uh, astronomers of whatever religion or no religion who say this is where the moon is right now. This is how you know, th this is the angle of incidence and this is the, the, the visibility of this moon today and tomorrow and the next day. And so this, this corresponds to us saying, those who can see where the moon is, even when the moon isn't visible, you, you say, 
there they can tell you that this is where the moon is and you follow that and then having uh many having you know different different people fasting at different times in the house um this is all also based on ichtihad everyone has their personal decision and it's never you you never follow someone's personal decision nor do you um negate or deny someone's personal decision so if someone says i'm fasting today and I say, well, it was Eid, and, and I say, well, it's not Eid for me, I'm fasting today, and it's my ijtihad that leads me to this, then it's up to me to say, I accept your ijtihad. I'm not going to follow it, I'm doing what my ijtihad says, and that it's that Eid day today. Um, so this can happen within two people or within a household. And then the Juma is an interesting one because you're only supposed to, you're not supposed to have two Jamaats, two Jumas, two Jamaat in a city. And of course, nowadays you have Jumas all over the place and within easy walking distance of each other. But in the old days, you're supposed to have one per city. And so uh, they didn't get that problem. So the problem that it comes up now, we have so many of them, then we have to go back to there is no outward conformity uh, among Muslims. There is inward conformity, there's inward harmony. So inwardly, we say we all of us accept the command of Allah. We all want to do what's pleasing to Allah. We all are making our individual decisions on what is most pleasing to Allah. And based on that, that's how I am. So the inward is in complete harmony in the, in the Muslim society and in the mother community. The outward can be quite different and, and quite, you know, look disharmonious, uh, but that's not anything to worry about. That's not something to be, you know, ashamed about or, or how can we believe in one God and have many, many of these different opinions and so on. Um, and so this is for Ibn Arabi. You say you look at the source and you find out what's inside and then the outsides will be will be very different. That's amazing. So Ibn Arabi is supporting multiplicity and diversity but obviously uh, you know rooted in unity so just to sum up the discussion around the moon sighting ibn arabi would therefore say that uh, you know a system based on calculation on the visibility of the moon in countries where it's clouded or you know uh, they don't tend to see the moon very often uh, the new moon that is is to take the calculation approach and and to begin your fast based on how evident it would be to uh, to view the moon in, in your city right because the the idea is that um, um, the moon is is there it's clouded over so I don't have to see the moon to know that the moon is there and by mm -hmm. there I mean visible right mm -hmm. so you can you can know where the moon is without seeing where the moon is Mm -hmm. Yeah, and Ibn Arabi uh, has to be utterly applicable to all of these situations in our life because his job, and he succeeded in doing it, is to be the dragoman, the conveyor of the message of the universal light of Muhammad Wasallam as embodied in Muhammad Wasallam. And so therefore, there can be no area or no place which is devoid of divine guidance. What, what about legal scholars, Fukaha, who would say ijtihad is reserved to uh, the alims the, uh, or those people who are trained in fiqh and 
uh, because they would know all the permutations and the conditions, etc. Uh, what would Ibn Arabi say in response to that then? Yeah. Well, the, by, by putting uh, preconditions uh, and conditions and preconditions on who, is in, who can do ijtihad, uh, those people are creating law. They're making new rules where there were no rules before. So if we have, take a fatwa from your heart, said three times by the Prophet take a fatwa from your heart, and, and so take a fatwa from the heart. We don't now say uh, where exactly is, the, is this heart and could the heart also mean something else and could this mean that and what is a fatwa? We don't add conditions to it and we don't say, oh, take a fatwa from the heart only when you're feeling good or only if you're a Muslim or only if you're this or only if you're that. That would be adding law to where there is no law. And so there is no condition. Ijtihad is this is the personal struggle to reach a decision. And so uh, there you go. And then and that's it's even amazing that, you know, some in, in this in some of these fuqaha even accept some kind of ijtihad because in, uh, for a long time they kept saying, oh, the gates of ijtihad are closed. And Ibn Arabi says, well, the interesting and it's I, I wonder if there's a word for catch 22 in, uh, in Arabic, uh, the word, uh, the, the idea of that the gates of ijtihad is closed. Ibn Arabi says, you could close the gates of ijtihad using ijtihad. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. so uh, it just doesn't work. So then you get to, uh, okay, ijtihad is there. And then, but then the scholars, they still want to constrict where things should be expanded. And constricting is making law where there shouldn't be, where the law has not been made and should not be made. And this constriction, Ibn Arabi says, this is the, the, the horrible, the calamity of legal scholarship, Ibn Arabi says, is this constriction. When the law is made to be, to, we are made to remove burdens. So you take away the haraj, the difficulties and the burdens. And that's why we have law. And then they're just adding burden upon burden and making things harder and harder. So he says, so because they'll say, oh, if you're a Shafi, you can't accept a easier ruling from the Hanafis or from the Hanbalis. And Imam Arabi says, this is nothing but creating law where there is no law. You go to wherever it is to find the law which has removed burden from you. That's amazing. And Sidi, so what about, I'm, I'm sure some listeners might have a question about a person following their waham or their um, ego, uh, egotistical sort of judgments as opposed to their heart and not being able to decipher between the two. Well, that's that's the path that we're on. If, if we're on if we're on the on a tariqah, if we're on a path, uh, this this path is one that has you know many obstacles and many uh, and also many exercises and practices that we can use to 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 make ourselves to train ourselves to see things as they truly are, and so uh, but uh, so seeing things as they truly are means that you have to struggle with yourself, and of course that's called the the major jihad is that to struggle with yourself. And I have to struggle with myself so that I can cl be clear on when I hear something, I'm hearing clearly. When I'm making a decision, I'm making a clear decision. Um, and that I am motivated by wanting to be uh, doing things that are well-pleasing to Allah. So that is, that's the path. And, and that's, that's what we do. Um, it's not, if, if I look at someone else, it's not for me. 
you know, in fact, it's to mind my own business. It's not for me to, to, to say what's happening to them on their inside. I can't know whether they're having a tremendous struggle with their fantasy, with their waham, their delusions, or whether they are making a decision based on a very true heart that has shown what the truth is. Um, I can't know other people's insights. And because of that, Ibn Arabi says, you take the situation of Hajjaj, who was by all accounts, you know, horrible, horrible person. You know, he had murdered people and, and uh, just a, a betrayer, a traitor, all these bad things outwardly. So Ibn Arabi says that the Sufis at that time, they were asking themselves, should we pray behind this man? Is our prayer valid if we pray behind him as the Imam? And Ibn Arabi says, he did wudu and he said, Allahu Akbar, and he led the prayer. There's, so he is your Imam. What happened with Hajjaj in the past, uh, I don't know. And what will happen, what Allah will have for him in the future, I cannot know. All I can know is in the present, he did wudu and he did his ablutions and he announced the beginning of the prayer. And that's all I can do is the present. And so Ibn Arabi is telling us that is how we interact with other people. We don't know what in the past brought them to this position, what traumas they've had, what problems they've had. We don't know that tomorrow this horrible person may become a great saint. We don't know that. And so we only deal with the present. And in the present, I can't deal with the inside. I can only deal with the outside. Has that person been uh, done what is good to me outwardly. And I can't be divining and thinking about what happened on the inside. Amazing. And so, again, not to put a condition on that, as, as you've just said, or make another ruling, uh, to, 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 for somebody to exercise ijtihad, uh, as you've said, it's not reserved for the awliya or people who've got a very elevated station of their uh, development of their nafs. Uh, but it's for that person simply to turn inwardly to their heart and and uh, seek counsel from from there. That's right. Yeah, and, and then and then when when we have, and then the person who see, so, so the person who is on a path on a path wanting to get closer to Allah, wanting to be well pleasing to Allah, that person will be will be looking at all of these things and saying, how can I go that way? How can I get closer? And they'll, and the way they'll get closer is by they'll struggle with their insides. In the inside, they'll struggle with themselves to say, "What brings me closer to Allah? What brings? What pushes me farther away from Allah?" And then they'll call out to Allah directly, "Allah, bring me close to you." And then they will they will look around and say, "Who are my guides?" And the guides are the ones who are the ahla dhikr, the people of the Quran, the people of the Quran which means the people of Muhammad because his character is the Quran. They're the ones who have seen the guidance uh, of the light of Muhammad embodied in the person of Muhammad And they're the ones who are in constant remembrance of this embodied reality and this embodied guidance. So we are looking for them as our teachers. Uh, so if you're on the path, you are looking for those who can guide you. Um, and the ones who guide you will be those who have, are the people of dhikr, as the Quran tells us. And these are the people of the path of Muhammad. That's amazing. And Sidi, just to 
round up uh, the podcast sessions. Somebody asked me a question, actually, funny enough, just related to this about Dhikr. They were curious as to know when it's mentioned about perpetual Dhikr, uh, day and night, you know, lying or standing or sitting, somebody to be in perpetual Dhikr. Does that necessarily mean they're verbally invocating the divine name or is it their state of being or in other words what they were trying to say is how can somebody be in a perpetual state of dhikr yeah well uh there's a better i better get this answer out there first off forget uh, uh all of creation is in is in perpetual dhikr um the human being and the jinn uh we can have the self that we call ourself it can it can be uh silent or not remembering of Allah but our skin our bones our our, our body is always in in perpetual dhikr of Allah and uh, so when the when the wind blows through the branches you hear who who that's a dhikr of Allah that's the who dhikr of Allah and so uh, when we breathe out and we if you're breathing out you're breathing out who and that who comes from the chest, from the first place, which the tajalli, the brilliant radiance of Allah hits. It comes out and then gets shaped by the mouth <clears throat> into different letters and different sounds. But they are all the breath coming out and it's coming out, it's the who. And so the breath that comes in is the nafas ar-Rahman, is the breath of ar-Rahman. And the breath that goes out is singing who. Even though that who can be altered by the mouth to make a different sound. <clears throat> So this is also how the people who are ever in their prayer. So on salat daim, the daimun. These are the ones who are ever in their salat. <clears throat> so the salat here is both blessing because salawat is a blessing, uh, and it's also the prayer. So their heart is prostrated. Their heart is uh, is prostrating before the divine. So what this is showing is that thicker is the natural truth of all creation and the salat blessing of the divine and these uh, the intimate conversation, the munajah with the divine is something that is ever, is always, it's always continuing. We're not aware of it. If we're a human or a jinn, most of us are not aware of it. If we are an animal, a plant or a mineral, we are utterly aware that every uh, ex X, the breath that comes out of a, of a plant, of an animal, is coming out as who, and that every uh, movement of the plant and the animal, and, if the, and, and then the stone sitting there, all of that is, uh, is for the divine celebration, the tasbih of the divine, the celebration of the divine. And so that's happening all the time. It's only the human beings who tend not to recognize that this is happening. Um, and so our skin, for instance, is very intelligent and knows that, th that the skin is, through its pores, is receiving from the outward nutrition and is giving out from through the pores of our skin to the rest of creation. And that filtering and that, and that uh, inspiration and expiration um, is its, uh, its tasbih. And so Ibn Arabi says the skin is, is intelligent. So don't, but don't let the skin be more intelligent than you. 
even though he knows that the skin is more intelligent than us, but he at least is challenging us to be not not less intelligent than this than our skin. Mashallah, thank you so much, Sidi Shoaib. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure and an honor uh, to be having this conversation with you. And I certainly, I'm fasting. I I can certainly feel much much more elevated uh, over the course of this conversation. Mashallah. Alhamdulillah. Okay. So, wish you a, a, a blessed Ramadan. Until next time, inshallah. Thank you. Alhamdulillah. It's good to be with you. Thank you very much. <laughs>